When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's see. And try this. Can you hear me on this? On the yeah. Is that better? No. It, let's no, not no. worry about. It. Okay. It's just it is what it is. All right. Cool. Chalkboard heresy. When's your first episode dropping, or has it dropped yet? No, we are in the process. It's uh, we've been kind of busy and working through kind of some of the logistical and, and technical hoops, but we're hoping to get it out. We think uh, sometime in mid March. Um, we want to kind of get our feet wet a little bit and try uh, try some different things and get used to the the technology. I've been trying to learn some of these tools that you're probably much more equipped and skilled at than I am. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be fun. You know, that's just how we're approaching it and, uh, we'll see how it goes. We're working on making a cool intro video too. We could use oh. your, your input on it. Who's going to you know, be something, twerking? something. Yeah. That's not something we consider, but now that you mention it, you know, You'll pop it. I don't, I have those fifty two year old hips, so I don't know if I can swing that. But uh, maybe with a few hmm. classes, if you if you have, know a good uh, twerking instructor. Oh, I mean, you're in the you're in New York. You could probably find uh, plenty of. It's true. I should be able twerkologists to. just around yeah. the corner. I need mm. a geriatric one though, one that's good working with the elderly. Because <laughs> my trainer actually told me that I have the I have the flexibility of an eighty year old man. Um, and he did that after like an extensive, you know, Thorough. assessment. Yeah. So I feel, I feel like it's an expert opinion. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. Well, you, you still are of nimble mind, so you can That's, do some there you go. verbal be, twerking. Frank and I will be doing, yeah, mental twerks. Yeah. 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 Twerking. Wow. What a, what a phenomenon. I haven't heard that since maybe, uh. It feels like it's been a few years when that kind of entered the scene and remember that it was, yeah. I mean, I just remember, you know, my students talking about it and trying to, uh, model it in class and me having to be like, no, you can't do that. It's inappropriate. Um, school dances was an issue hmm. over sexualized, you know, they were, there was kind of a hysteria about it. And, uh, oh, and then at, you know, school assemblies, you know, when the cheerleading squad tried to incorporate it, that was a, uh, kind of a contentious performance. Um, so, All right. yeah. It's sort of like the that. Kevin Bacon movie, but updated for 2020. <laughs> what was that ass movie? Loose. <laughs> yes. Ass loose. Well put. Well done. That's, you know, Hollywood scared of taking risks so we just need to franchise that shit and, and hmm. update it for for our yeah. time 
Yeah, just reboot T. Yeah. The booty call reboot. But instead of like evil preachers, it'll be like evil, I don't know, evil woke preachers or something. But no, actually, it would be the other way around. They would be encouraging the expressions of, mm. I don't know, there's something mm. there. Mm-hmm. What, why is the... Um... Why is the bouncing buttock uh, inherently sexual, or is that a cultural matter? I think it's actually like a real nature matter. I'm going to chalk that one up to the old uh, evolutionary god hmm. that lives within all of us. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's a. I think it's uncomfortable for. I, you know, I remember the school assembly where, where this happened, where there was twerking by the cheerleading squad and adults are kind of looking around at each other like, should this be happening? Is this right? I mean, this is high school and uh, the crowd of students loved it. And there's always this segment of the teacher population, too, that tries to kind of uh, impose this idea that these are adults and that, well, they're, they have a right to do this and they, you know, they're sexual beings too, which I always thought was really bizarre. And, um, yeah, there was a little debate about it and, you know, the kind of ultra woke progressive left within the school felt that it was, it was okay. And it was appropriate. And these are performances that are culturally relevant or some kind of, uh, argument along those lines i i didn't necessarily agree and uh you know but th this is there was a that what was that incident sex positivity uh, is a big thing yeah sex positivity and against slut shaming but now it's kind of gone i think it's gone too far but right you know um we had that problem in my school too where you know you have uh you have the same kind of issues and then they're yeah they're saying we don't want to uh, shame kids for you know expressing themselves and and you know the philosophy is i at the school association that runs you know that runs the programs for these schools the children are children are sexual from birth that's the premise you know so like they're just coming into their own you know and who are we to stand in the way um there was that that controversy. Do you guys remember this? This was maybe a month or two ago. I think I shared the video where um, there was it was a high school assembly, and the, some of the male students were in drag and they were twerking. And you know, there was a teacher or two that got up and was getting into it. And uh, as you can imagine, a lot of upset community members and uh, a lot of questions were being asked. So this is, yeah, it's definitely becoming kind of an issue. This, as, as Paul said, this effort to kind of promote or accept sexuality as um, something that should be openly shared by young people within a school setting and that adults need to be comfortable with it, um, which, you know, yeah. It's funny. It was kind of funny to watch my administration. I don't know how we want to spend on this, but they would tie themselves in knots about, you know, the justification for maintaining a dress code and professional. They would say, you know, is this a professional? We're trying to make it an, an environment where 
people can focus on learning and all this stuff. But it was, again, it was totally mixed messages because on the other hand, they were pushing all this ideology that, you know, it's, you should be able to wear whatever you want. And if, if, if you feel harassed as a woman, well, then that's entirely the fault of the harasser, right? You should be able to theoretically walk naked. And if somebody cat calls you, then that's the other, that's the male gaze or whatever. Um, so really it was about, uh, by their own logic, it was really a form of prudery. And then you have the kids calling them on it and say, well, what do you mean? You know, you're telling us this one thing in class and you're saying this other thing in policy. And, you know, I, I just remember Chuck like laughing at the whole thing because it's sort of like liberals demise, liberalism's demise. They can't live by their own rules. Hmm. Um, well, they can't, it's really difficult for them to, uh, justify any sort of breaks. Uh, but there's also a shift of taboo or mores, uh, well, I'm thinking about John McWhorter talking about the shifting and what is a bad word or a cuss word has changed from bodily functions, you know, um, about this, that, and the other thing to demonizing groups more about. Yeah. The, yeah, the N word is the new F word kind of thing. Uh, just for example. Yeah. I wonder, is there, is there like some kind of zero sum psychological taboo in any culture where like it has, there has to be some taboo somewhere and it just kind of hops around. I was wondering, like, is that, can you really, can you really have, you just can't have a society without it. The taboo's got to go somewhere. You, universal taboos you're going to talking about that you can find in almost every culture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, um, you, can't... I, you know, cannibalism, incest in, in the vast majority. Now there's all, you know, I remember there always being exceptions uh, when you study anthropology, um, which I did a little bit of, um, you can always yeah, find certain the societies that incorporate it to a degree, but those are kind of the big ones that seem yeah. to uh, make it across the list. It feels it like whack-a-mole. The, the moral foundations theory of Jonathan Haidt, and uh, I don't know if he's update, updated it since his uh, The Righteous Mind book, uh, where he kind of plots or he did a bunch of surveys or studies on conservatives and liberals, and, and he shows that there's these different moral matrices and how, generally speaking, liberal people have a they they have all of their morality is stacked on these two points, whereas conservatives are stacked on a, a variety of different points. And I remember, at least in the book, he he speaks about how purity is not really big or discussed. Purity discussed isn't really big in liberals. But I've been watching over the past six years since Evergreen, at least purity like kind of monstrously like this completely unconstrained demand for ideological purity kind of surface in the last few years. So I wonder if, if there's like a suppression of, of certain things and then it just kind of pops up, it, it'll flip eventually in a society because there has to be some sort of either society itself needs moralism of some sort, or you can't get rid of the moralists in society and they're always going to be oh, exerting yeah. some sort of force on it. And so you need to give them, you know, something to be fundamental about and then kind of constrain them by giving a matrix that everybody can agree upon. But if you don't do that out in the open, then it'll happen behind closed doors. And then you have somebody did a clever tweet yesterday about the definition of being woke is that you don't know what you're going to be forced to believe tomorrow kind of thing, like because it's it's going to jump up. Yeah. 
And sexuality is just really interesting because it does have such a incredibly strong uh, biological pull. Then you have a bunch of taboos around age, and then you have a bunch of taboos around consent, and then you have to play all of these mating games. And then on top of all of that, it has consequences. It creates human beings, and it creates a lot of trouble for everybody involved. Or it can be a very beautiful thing if constrained correctly. It's been interesting to watch. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to uh, add to what Benjamin said about kind of the moralism of the, the left and the woke. And I, I noticed that um, in conversations, um, maybe going back seven or eight years ago, I used to think when I was younger that the left was kind of this objective, rational kind of segment of society. And I started noticing... Um, when I would push back a little bit, you know, from friends who were also on the left, I'd get these these moral arguments that, well, it's it's just wrong or you should don't you care about this or don't you feel this way? And I was like, well, yeah, but, you know, what about the outcome? What about, you know, the, the, the facts and kind of how these things play out from a um, kind of an empirical model? And that was rejected. And so that kind of got me starting to question, I think, an ideology that I kind of fell into um, from an early age and came out of later in life um, because I, my, what I believed about it just wasn't true. It, it wasn't an ideology of rationalism or hmm. science, as they say. It was sometimes quite the opposite. And I think we've seen that kind of play out today. Um, you know, we're told what it's supposed to be, but what it is, is something entirely different. Why, why do you guys think that that's the case? I mean, I'm thinking just off the top of my head that the, the draining of the churches, um, the defeat of the churches by rationalism left nowhere for the, uh, fundamentalists, the moralist to go except into a rational church. And so they filled up this rational church because the other one was argued out of existence or whatever. But you, you just population control or just understanding that psychology, the psychology of individuals and the psychology of groups uh, needs to be maintained and regulated in some way. And there will be a moralistic kind of barometer that will be influenced by culture. And if you don't have explicit terms of that, then you have a bunch of people dressing up their feelings and uh, another form of speech, right? Like you're saying a moral argument, but not to say that I want to go away or completely leech moralism or morality or moral arguments out of society and out of debate. Cause I think that, I mean, that's where we're starting out. What, what is it about a buttock going like this that is morally questionable? You know, I agree with you. I think that we have this tendency to gravitate um, probably from an evolutionary perspective. Societies that had certain kind of moral and religious values maybe fared better. And I think we have those proclivities and those tendencies and the idea that we can get away from those, I think, is is just wrong. And so I think the, what the what's kind of happened with the left is that it's just wrong. Is this a moral argument? It is a moral argument. It's it's 
it's a uh, it's morally wrong to think he can get away with that. No, I don't think I don't think you can escape it. it I think it's something probably uh, again complete conjecture, but I think it's probably rooted in our um, in the way our brain is kind of been evolved and i think the left has filled kind of that vacuum that they they require that all human beings require of having kind of a moral center and having certain guiding religious beliefs with politics and so Hmm. i've kind of argued you know even societies that i may disagree you know with how they do things or or i i still appreciate and respect that they have certain um kind of foundations that seem to guide the society that aren't rooted just in secular politics which i think can be a lot more destructive than uh maybe even certain religious kind of uh elements that we've always been told have you know are inherently destructive and violent and irrational um and i i look at the 20th century as an example where you know most of the mass murdering was going on and you know, communist nations that were kind of these secular uh, state cults. Um, but that's just my my morally subjective argument. I could be wrong. What are your thoughts? I had I had a thought. Like, there's a couple things I was thinking. Like, when you guys were talking, is I had a lot of trouble growing up when I kind of lost my religion coming out of Catholicism and entering. And I grew up in a very liberal, like, really pre woke town, Ithaca, New York, which is because it's a college town. It's very much like Austin or any of these other college towns and a lot of professors, kids. And, and, you know, I think we had, you know, we, we, I had trouble moving from one very restrictive sort of moral, moral language into another one, which was restrictive, but had a different idiom, like this word appropriate, right? So the, the, we moved from it moved from this sort of universal morality where you know God sees all and knows that this is bad and this is demonic and and so on like the very clear that really gets into your gut and then into this secular sort of world where the language was different and this word appropriate kept coming like that's inappropriate that's inappropriate and I was like yes yeah, so what it just doesn't have the weight it doesn't have the uh you know I can't play by this what are these rules like you you're acting as if it has this moral weight which it just doesn't it's just a socially contextual thing and i don't i actually feel like i need mm-hmm. to violate it to show you even though i don't believe in god anymore necessarily or this thing i need to show you that there's something deeper and more primal than this sort of thin veil of what you think is socially acceptable like that's not morality you think you know mm-hmm. morality i know morality so I felt this kind of pugnacious need to challenge it. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that was maybe just, you know, my own hormones and developmental stuff. But I, I feel like there's a – they want to have all of the weight of a morality, but they're using contextual clues. And every, what's appropriate for somebody, for one group, is not appropriate for another. So you run into all these relativist problems. I mean, there's Well, yeah, that, that's what I was thinking, the, the usefulness of appropriateness – rather than good and bad or good and evil is that you can subjectively shift it around these multicultural you can say okay these it's okay for these people to to act this way Mm -hmm. and it's but it's not okay for these people to act this way which causes 
and this is a problem with modernity, especially American modernity, meaning there's all these different cultures. How do we get along in a pluralistic society without a universal morality? How do we do that? So the the liberals, um, I think, uh, tried to deal with that problem by making something that's very, it's it's basically etiquette, but it has to shift so much. And then because it, it was unanchored, and then it turned into postmodernism. Now the the liberal mediator of all these moralities can only ever, uh, I guess, just do this very basic political shift of blaming the white man, right? I guess that's that's ultimately what we see. Is that the only grounding now is the dominant culture, by definition of being dominant, is oppressive. That's the only that's that's the the, the devolution of that because it was too complex. For these moralists and low, low, uh, just low thinkers, which is not bad. You can't get away from stupid people in society. You need to give a framework for smart people and stupid people to be in a harmonious relationship with with each other. But the smart people developing this really complex thing, then it's just devolved into something that is really, uh, really base uh, when it hits the streets. Let's say from the tower. Yeah, like a, just an intersectional sorting mechanism. You know, knee-jerk reactions and like this is good, this is bad, and then I also see onto that the distorting hat to reference Harry Potter. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, is the Sorry. norms like the uh, certain? You got norms. You got a new kind of norms, but you also have practices. So the what I see in like a lot of the um, the trainings with kids and and teachers is that they'll have. Uh, they'll actually be co-creating, you know, co-creating, but it's really created by the teacher in a lot of ways, these new social moral practices around impact over intent and reparations at the personal level so that when you get to the the big questions about reparations for slavery and that, it's like, so they're instantiating this moral framework. They're no longer sort of piggybacking on Judeo-Christianity because that now they're sort of pushing in this new moral framework in kindergarten through sixth grade, which is about, you know, um, collective harm, this kind of yeah. thing, which, you know, erupted out of Evergreen and other universities. But, um, and I see that playing out in a really toxic way. Um, maybe I'm just a fuddy duddy and I, I, I see all the bad sides of it, but I, it's it's really interesting because I think what's being cooked up right now at the younger grades in elementary are is that this is an entirely we moved into another realm here um, around these types of behaviors and norms and uh, it's scary. Unless you're in these circles, a lot of times you'll start to notice the emergence of new language that clues you in that there's kind of these thought trends going on. And I saw this in education. You'd start to hear words enter, um, like collective harm or trauma. They'd start talking about trauma. All of a sudden, trauma became kind of this word that was used very frequently. And mm -hmm. I always felt I was trying to catch up if I wasn't in tune with their kind of politics and their ideological kind of strands and what they were reading and what they were following. We would just start to, well, I just start to be familiar with these words uh, that I, you know, I knew what they meant, but they were being used in a different context. 
And so it's, um, it's always a game with kind of this, what I've described as kind of this ideological cult to find out what do these new words mean and why are they being used in this particular way and what, what is actually kind of the goal here. And you see that in education a lot. A lot of times before you figure out what's going on, what is collective trauma, what is uh, collective harm mean, it's already become instituted in the school in some type of program. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, there was that law school. Um, I, Evergreen just keeps on happening over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. But from from you know from grade school to high, well, mostly in high school and college when the kids start to say well, we we have some power here. Um, but there was that law school. Somebody did a very her- tor- terrible tweet. I can't remember the guy's name, and now he's on suspension. And the students oh, yeah, protested. Yeah, yeah. And there was something in the what the students were demanding was a place to cry. Like there was no place for the students to go and cry. Like there was a, something that they wanted at law school, like this special room, I guess, with dehumidifiers and wow. you know, like lotion woven Kleenex to, to, to bathe in their emotions. Um, it, it was just, it was just kind of ridiculous, but they are really, these, these young people are really sincere about this. And then a high school, there's another incident in Olympia here where some a basketball game some boys called a boy a gorilla and the boy happened to be of a different of a certain skin cast and that was a big problem and then then the students started to perform the right of protest now the r-i-t-e of protest and there was this uh, the high school did this <laughs> It's a high school news program, so it's really cheesy, but it's so brilliant. And they they interviewed this girl who's protesting, and she was uh, she was yelling about how ever since she moved to the school, she wanted blue contacts and she wanted blonde hair, and she demanded from her mother that, and she would cry all the time because people thought that she was different because of her race, because she's slightly Asian but she's super pale, and she and and they're saying that all these racist incidents are happening, but they won't name. What happened? One thing happened, just like at Evergreen, this happens over and over again. One thing happened, and it's usually verbal or linguistic. It's a discourse that enters the conversation, and it violates the sacred body of usually of a black male is is violated in some way. The Evergreen State College, uh, a, a black male was asked to give a statement to the cops, and that was a violation of taking the black body. They said the black body was taken out of his bed and submitted to the police or whatever. And once that one event occurs, then everybody has to intersectionally find their own trauma and then start to attach it and becomes just this weird cellular kind of formation on a moral matrix where everybody starts getting involved and, and attaches themselves to it. And, and it doesn't really have any context because it's all discursive. It's all about these emotions and the subjectivity and and it's really difficult for administrators to say what actually happened let's be objective about this and get things under control because they don't have any ground to stand on it seems like and i wonder to what extent because i hear this a lot that this is the liberals fault that the liberalism or liberalism in general led to this i don't understand how it led to this but a lot of people are saying that now that this is the outcome or the downfall of liberalism and you said that earlier paul yeah, no, it's it's uh, and as I see this sort of leaching down into the lower grades, it really so much of it is argument by analogy, this the speech and violence act, right? So so they'll tell kids, you know, impact over intent, impact over intent. If you harm someone, 
you know, you ha- the reparations that you have to make to that person are long lasting and eternal. Like they go on in in the future forever. So, and when the analogy they give is, you know, if you are trying to get chocolate chip cookies for your friend, right, and you're taller than your friend, and so you're reaching into a cabinet over their head and you step on their foot while you're trying to get them the cookies. And your friend is saying, you know, you're standing on my foot, you're standing on my foot, you're hurting me. And you're saying, no, my intent is to get you the cookies that you want. So it's okay for me to stand on your foot. And then finally you realize, oh, I'm standing on your foot. And you say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, but I was trying to get you the cookies. Like this is, this is, you know, this is the They actually situation. use that? Yeah, they use this. You this didn't is, make this up? No, no, this is like. <laughs> That's so stupid. These are BLM curriculum educators like fourth and fifth grade educators at a lab school at the university of chicago lab school like it's got and and that analogy is used to carry into the non-physical realm so anytime someone right so that now now the onus is on you just to finish the analogy if i step on your foot while i'm getting you cookies and i realize that i've been stepping in your foot and and what is the problem now well your foot is still throbbing so now i will have to be to perform the reparative act, I have to get you ice. I have to say, can I massage your foot? You know, like I'm responsible for this. And right, like there is this grain of truth, which is yes, like intent is, you can't just say it's all intent, right? Because you do have, there is like a strict liability or negligence thing that you need to repair. But that grain of truth is pushed way over the deep end. And now like everything is in impact which creates all this moral hazard. So I can just say, you impacted me, you know, and my trauma is, needs to be repaired. Like, and so you can just hijack any situation. And like you said, play into the power dynamic of, you know, kids feeling their oats at an institution. There's a lot of opportunity here. There's also networking and careerism involved and Oh, and the, the internet all that impact, stuff. the yeah, the internet of, uh, and cloud and social media. The profile. So, so it it it's opened this tremendous exploit in the moral framework of our universe. You know, where like any, and to even challenge the that and to suggest that it might be an exploit is to like triple the harm, you know, quadruple the harm, whatever. So, um, it's this feedback loop where mm-hmm. you know, and this is being what this is what's being taught to a lot of kids today. Um, as this sort of substitute morality. And then that becomes the platform, like the, the hard-coded OS that they can put all the other political stuff on top of it. Hmm. So it's, yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. But get what, it. Do you, what, do, what do you think their their goal with this is? What in their minds, from their perspective, what are they ultimately trying to do? What What are their intentions? Teachers or students? Um, is their the intent teacher, versus the their impact? implementing? Yeah. Um, so the te- you know behind this because I've, I've heard kind of different reasonings and arguments for it that sound benign or sound well intentioned. But what is 
what's behind us? The true believers are um, the they're actually really good teachers. That's the sad part. It's like mm -hmm. they're filled with the passion of the spirit. They're filled with the zealotry and they they relate well. I mean, they are, you know, some of them I'm sure like go too far, but like a lot of them are just really good with kids. Which high you know, empath. High high empath, exactly. Like yeah. you know, and so and for those, um, collective liberation. Like they're not banding, they're not mincing words. Like they want collective liberation, they want transformative social change, um, they want the whole beautiful rock candy mountain dream of mm. total societal utopia. And they're willing to do what a lot of other previous instantiations of these people were not willing to do. Like they're willing to get in there and work past the time horizon of their own lives. I mean, they're very clear that like, this is not something that will happen in our lifetime. They have that level of commitment and, you know, they're willing to do the work, the work, uh, which is the phrase, yeah, at the very basic one-to-one -one human level or one-to-many in small groups. So if you want to uh, pry institutions away from that level of commitment, you got a tough road to hoe. I mean, they're not messing around. Hmm. Um, that's what I see. I don't know. What do you see, Frank, in, in your, uh, with your colleagues? Um, I think they've, they've become a lot more honest about their intentions and, and why they are um, doing things. The idea of liberatory education has kind of um, started to be, it, it's almost like they're saying the quiet part out loud. They're saying what we, we knew, they're just, you know, it, before it wasn't spoken or it was kind of whispered like, yeah, we want to change society. We want to, um, you know, make our students change agents and create a better world. But it wasn't something you, you spoke about openly. And now it's become kind of the official dogma of um, K to 12 institutions. And I'm, you know, I've just over the past few years, I think I, I noticed again in 2016, I always say this things really started to change where it was like this Donald Trump was elected and it was this call to action. It was, this is, we need to do something. It, it, it motive and I'm just, I'm just still kind of in shock that they, they say these things without any awareness for how, you know, the other half of the country feels about them. It's just, we decided this and this is what we're doing with your schools. There might be a grain of hope in the fact that there are weaknesses to these groups and there aren't while they are very very dedicated it seems at least in chicago a few weeks ago that the teachers union just decided by fiat to close schools right so it seems like while they are very selfless and giving to the students they're also very frail in themselves this ideology creates very stringent beliefs and very dedicated people but it's also harm can really be used to control it or the threat of harm, which is problematic when you have something like a pandemic that could be staged. I'm not talking about this pandemic, but if you wanted to stage a pandemic, you could just lead this whole group of people around based on fear and you can just cause them to, you could totally control this population because while they're high empathy, they're worshiping of harm 
also causes them to have a very big fear impulse or, or uh, you know, uh, connection to, to that stimulus. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I saw that in my school, you know, when I started to just not give a fuck anymore, frankly, like I was just this is what I this is I'm not apologizing. I'm here. I'm going to teach my class. I'm going to try to help my students understand that I'm not a racist, but like I'm not going to say what you want me to say. Like it just it was like people started shunning me and then they had to have meetings about what I said. And and they were very fragile and flimsy on their own and they need to constantly huddle together for support. And like they're just like algae on the ocean, kind of like they don't have anything underneath and they 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 always need to have you know, self-care and radical yeah. self-care and, and, and that kind of thing is, um, it, it, that's really interesting because I felt like if enough people did that, like the whole thing would just kind of fall apart. They have a um, collective will, but a lack of backbone at the same yeah, time. Yeah. I, it's almost as if individually, I, I feel that you're right, that they kind of present this frailness, but collectively is where they have some teeth. Mm-hmm. And that was what I experienced mm-hmm. is that a lot of these individuals, the, um, the kind of collective action that I experienced where it was kind of collective ostracization, collective comments, mm-hmm. it, um, that pressure I didn't understand before. And I thought I was kind of prepared for it. Ah, I can take it, you know, individually these, but when you start to feel it on a collective level, it, it weighs on you. And I, I understand now why people get scared, why they back down. It's painful. It's, uh, you know, I hate to use that word traumatic, but it can be when you feel that all of a sudden you are kind of, uh, you know, the lone person in this mm-hmm. atmosphere is social power and social pressure is, mm-hmm an incredibly powerful weapon and yeah, it uh, triggers a lot of uh, mechanisms and like in your survival. I mean, just how we're designed. Like if, if our, if a group is against us or our group is against us, we are totally screwed, which is not the case, but all that framework is still embedded in there. Uh, and it's one thing for that to happen online with a bunch of strangers, which can be pretty traumatic or, you know, a certain group, um, not, yeah, yeah. Tra- traumatic, just, Broadly sure. speaking, at least anxiety riddling. Uh, but when it's in your place of work, when it's a place where you identify with your work and you're, you've invested, like you have so much of your time, so much of your energy, so much of your care and your love into the students and then into the institution to have the people in that institution go against you, it, it can cause crises of faith. And it can really hit you on a, on a really deep level, like not just, uh, you know, uh, physiologically or with anxiety or panic attacks, but it can kind of disturb a very deep foundation if it happens to be the case that you uh, really had faith in the institution or in the project of the institution. And to have that break can really leave a lot of people adrift. I yeah, agree. there needs to be more support totally for teachers in that space or employees or, you know, like I read Jody Shaw's The Full Complaint of her case. It's, it's so much worse than I even knew. Like, it's crazy, you know. Um, and it's hard to find because you need standing if you're going to stay, if you're going to sue and make a case, you need to stay in there and keep, keep the job, right, Frank? Is that, so you have to, 
may have to go through staying there for years. And um, that's really you hard. can st- Yeah, you, I think you can still have a case even if you leave. You can claim, you know, that it was due to um, whatever pressures and stressors you were facing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's um, you know, Weinstein well, and Hying pulled out uh, when they did their tort claim. They did the calculus, mm-hmm. like it'll be 10 years and then what we have and, you know, the circumstances and stuff. So sorry, yeah. sorry, Frank, go on. Oh, no, no, no. I, I was just saying, you know, uh, one thing that struck me, what you said was the, the physiological response of this is so interesting. I mean, how it affects your sleep, your, your body, how you feel. It's, uh, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I, and uh, I, I think appreciating that that power um is important but i think it also illustrates the need for support systems for people that do decide to speak out or to take a stand on an issue if they don't have a support system if they don't have people willing to stand with them or or to give them kind of what they're what's going to be taken away it could be really bad i mean i heard from some teachers who were going through similar things i mean talking about being in such a dark place they didn't want to live anymore they were and um Mm -hmm. it's 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 a terrible and and the the fake empathy it illustrates of people who uh, i worked with who i would witness in the same day posting about compassion and empathy and the need for these things would be completely nasty to me um kind of in this group atmosphere was just, I mean, it was, you had to laugh. You had to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, posting about the compassion of, of, you know, towards this group while at the same hand, mm-hmm. merciless towards other people. I, I, I don't understand it still. It's bizarre. Bizarre. The so audacity building. of cacacity. Ooh, cacacity. Did you ever heard that phrase? Caucasity is that about being Caucasian? Yeah, yeah. Like so, it's this is whiteness. often. Yeah, you'll hear this Caucasity. at certain, you know, spaces where if someone steps, if someone is like actively working against, like Frank and myself, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're basically it's like oh, it's the audacity of Caucasity, okay. right? So, which is I, I'm like what. Why would you want to put that? Why would you want to racialize that? Like, isn't that something that everyone should be is audacious? Like, why is that? Like, it seems like kind of like a compliment in a weird way. Okay. Hmm. Like, but I don't want to make it. It's not because I'm white. You know, it's, it's so funny. Like the, the weird phrase phrases that pop up. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Uh, going back to argument by analogy and also kind of um, rudimentary memeing. Uh, it just, it, it's all about finding these clever little phrases and I can't think of any off the top of my head, but you know, just being at Evergreen, they would, they would f- figure out these little barbs and they were always pointed toward the white man or the cis heteronormative white man. It was like, you just go everywhere. There'd be somebody shitting on a, a white man and everybody laughing. Right. While right, at the yeah. same time, if the slightest notion of disrespect, you know, somebody tore down a poster of a, um, somebody actually tore down a poster of a black event, uh, or event about the black students. 
And it turned out that the posters didn't go through the correct, you know, getting stamped and, you know, going through the thing to be on there because there's this whole like bureaucracy about what posters are allowed and how long they'll be there. They didn't do that. So somebody tore down this thing. And Naima Lowe, one of the professors there, she tried to start a revolution about this, about these posters, right? Somebody tore down a poster. And that was yeah. the thing. But at the same time, you'd be in class after class, after training, after training of these little tiny barbs, like going after you, going after you, going after you, as if you happen to be in that category. Well, yeah, collective, collective, uh, the collective is like you are a sentience unto yourself and you have a, you're all like shamans for this, this mm. deep historical resonance, right? So you're just you're in this incredibly heightened sense that mm. when the slightest pinprick happens, you're just like it. It activates that whole neural, all those neural pathways, always leading back, yeah. all the way back in time, and then you're just you operate as one body, and it's it's thrilling. It's got to be wonderful. It's got to be like you know incredibly Religious. awesome. Yeah, like yeah. Um, and I. I you reminded me of another story like from uh in one of the videos i've been watching and it's it's a um a woman who's a dei coordinator at her school and she's on the hiring committee and she talks about the white supremacy in the hiring committee so they're looking at resumes and he said there's that one white lady who's always checking the grammar of the cover letter you know and you know if there's one comma out of place this karen is on top of it right and she's saying you know and then you know she's always doing it with all the resumes and then we finally we got a resume from a person of color you know with a and she did that and i felt what it was like for me to apply to this to a school when i didn't have the skills or training to write my cover letter the right way maybe and i left you know, i expressed myself differently because there's no universal standard or whatever and i started crying and I left the room crying. And then when the lady said if she could talk to me, I said, no, I'm not ready. And I had to process it. Right. So and my feeling is like, how can you keep your job? Like, how could you like this is there have to be universal standards of behavior. And not only that, but like it's not that the, the, the problem in this whole experience is that this woman who treated all the resumes that way also treated someone else's resume the same way. That's the thing. And I'm like, don't you see that this is not what you think? I mean, I understand your feelings. We're all feeling beings and we all have things, but like there's a point at which your subjectivity is not the issue here. And you can't explain that to somebody who is living in that, so deeply in their emotions not just you know? living but profiting too well yeah right i mean i'm being i'm being as charitable as i you know as i can be yeah. here but like um i think i think it's both right like i think carlin said you know it's both a grift and it's real so you you wind up you know that's how that's the side your bread is buttered on but you also are feeling it yeah. i think a lot of it's theatrics um as a way to weaponize this harm you experienced, uh, this this victimhood, in in some kind of bizarre, perverse way, gives you power, because now you have been wronged, and that gives you a standing 
to do something, to kind of tap into that collective power for revenge, for a voice. I don't, I mean, I don't know sometimes when I, when I've heard people say these, these things, you know, I was harmed by this comment or it, you know, the collective trauma I experienced. I don't know if I always believe them. It feels like it's a theatrical display that people are putting on. It's yeah. And I, I think it's true. You can, you can tell like in the, in the case you raised uh, Benjamin where Ilya Shapiro was it Ilya Shapiro in Georgetown. Sounds correct. Yeah, he says he says a thing about a lesser candidate, and everyone thinks they meant that he that he thought the person was a lesser human being. Oh, for the SCOTUS, yeah, right. Yeah. It was about uh, Joe Biden explicitly doing a affirmative action hire right. for the. Uh, I mean, it's the most cynical misinterpretation of that thing that he said. You could not possibly, as a functioning sentient being in twenty twenty two, like believe that he actually meant based in the context that she was a, that any black woman was a lesser human being, right? That's just not a reasonable conclusion to draw. But then, you, you know, if you look at the demands, the demands are, you know, an increase in the power of the group making demands. I don't remember exactly what the demands were, but yeah. it's a, clearly a power grab. You know, and well, it's a let's say, for example, it's probably the black student union wanting to be able to have a representative on every hiring board or like enforcing. Yeah, there was like, something more, like I, I yeah. have, to, have to look at it closely. But yeah, it was yeah. basically. And so, you know, yes. Right. It's not. This is not like selfless. Well, and and they, they say that specifically about having you, you see this incestuous um power grab that's been happening but it probably doesn't need to happen explicitly anymore or uh you know openly anymore where the uh the the teachers or the hiring committee the teachers who are doing something that has power they get into the power position and then they say we need student input and then they get to select what students are so they train the students to think a certain way and then they implant those students even further and eventually it just it, it stacks up to such a point that you can't stop this thing. You, you can't stop it because it's at every level of the entire from, from yeah, and all the they, great. It's all the way. They up just to did the, this at a, at a private school in New York, the, the uh, collegiate mascot. So there was complaints about them. You know, someone wrote a letter. To, well, it's a group of students wrote a letter in 2019 with a set of demands. Um, and then they 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 hired they, they created this committee to this, this task force to discuss the mascot and the the listening session read the whole thing yeah. and they released this 400 page report which the post wrote about and they ch they changed the mascot from peg leg pete he's this dutchman oh um supposed to, well there was there was that part of it but also it was unclear whether the dutchman mascot was supposed to be peter stuyvesant who was in new amsterdam in the history of new york and he was a you know slave owner or slave you know, supporter of slavery or whatever. So they draw this connection. And then they did all these surveys and polls of the alumni, the parents, the students, the faculty and staff, you know, the board. And then what they, what they, what shakes out of that is that, you know, most of the alumni, parents and students don't really give a crap, but the faculty and staff are very vocal. And then the group of kids are very vocal. And then they use the logic of saying, well, the mascot is divisive. So we need to change it. So they use the division that's created as a, as a rationale for changing it. So, you know, it's very, it's very, do you remember what they turned that mascot into? It's kind of a, it's kind of a, 
it's kind of cool actually like the new mascot is kind of cool okay. it's a it's it's a more stylized like dutchman he's got like a low, one of those those brimmed hats and it's orange and blue and he's like kind of it's kind of intense actually they did a good job with the replacement but you know peg leg pete right and then and then but then you also have amazing in this 400 page report they have amazing qualitative data from all these different people saying yeah it's not a big deal like he's it's tradition like what's the problem and then you have some people complaining and then you can really see at a granular level everything that every person who responded to the report and there's they in the post they say it's like 400 pages of woke nonsense but it's actually not it's actually 400 pages of full qualitative so 300 pages are full qualitative data and it's it's a case study on how these institutions are changing from within and and the logic that's being used i know it's fascinating the squeaky grease uh the squeaky wheel gets all of the grease in the yeah, end yeah all your grease belong to me <laughs> that's that's what these equity firms often do is they come into schools and kind of build a case for the school district for whoever hired them you know and and my school district, it was the superintendent, kind of had this ideological mission and a few of the school board members. And they basically build a case for them on why they need these changes to occur throughout the institution and why they need these ideological mandates and programs. And so they go around and they interview, like, you know, as Benjamin said, they interview certain students and certain parents and they compile it into a report that presents a compelling case that the school district is a bastion of white supremacy and of um, black bodies being subjected to harm. And they've, you know, they're doing very well. The amount of money they charge uh, is, is really something. And you look at the qualifications of these people and it's just, I mean, undergraduate degrees or sometimes, you know, sometimes master's degrees. And I don't know what, what makes them specialized to do this. They, but they analyze inequity and then they present their report and mm -hmm. there you go you get rolling yeah it's the uh it's the i was thinking about this when i was speaking with james lindsay and king crocoduck uh we brought up at the beginning of our conversation uh the catholic church and the downfall of that or uh, martin luther going up and saying this is a corrupt institution and kind of nailing those 20 things and i was just thinking about the analogy of indulgences like liberalism is at the place where the catholic church was at the, right before right around when the printing press was was available which mm. is kind of the internet now and and uh, these indulgences where you pay these companies you pay these priests mm. exorbitant fees to purge the sins and then give you a bunch of hail marys to say right yeah, which is just yeah, these dei true. things it's all performative it's all theater it's all collective it's all analogous it's all discourse right there, there's these themes that i'm hearing that we're talking about but cause it to be, it can, it's not real, but it is a collective reality, right? It's, it's a collective holographic psychosis or, or a mirage or hallucination that is supposed that's supported. And then it has material roots in it now by all these, uh, bureaucracy. So it's completely, it exists within the bureaucracy, just like the, I'm sure the Catholic church has all these different things at a certain point in its, uh, belabored history of just having so much grift going on or so much extra excess uh that it has to fuel itself and so the the uh, the the institution just needs to possess some sort of ideology in order to mobilize itself and put itself first right or, or at least exert its power 
over the participants in it. And the bureaucracy as just uh, as a bureaucracy, it, it's not human. It cannot act like human, but it's dressing itself up with this moralism that makes it seem like human. And then all these people inside of it, the moral priests, the Pharisees, basically freaking hypocrites are going through there and, and just enacting this entire thing, munching up humanity in the process. Yeah. I mean, that was my, you know, that, uh, the kind of analogy I drew, I felt that it was a, you know, that I was in the midst of this kind of religious movement taking place and, you know, to, to speak out against that literally, you know, to be a heretic. And, um, it definitely has religious overtones, the, the, the kind of penance you're expected to serve when you do something wrong. The, there's self-flagellation involved. You have to punish yourself if you say the wrong thing. Um, I think growing up as a uh, Catholic, there were definitely, you know, connections I saw that I was like, wow, there's this is mirroring my experience, you know, um, just in a completely different fashion, you know, the parallels. Yeah. Well, okay. So this is an interesting question because uh, you guys are both Catholics. You guys both, uh, I, Frank, I, I don't know your status right now, but Paul, you said that you left the church. You became atheist, at least for a time. You stepped from Catholicism into this liberal church and and yet you somehow step out of it. So was there something in Catholicism or you're wrestling with Catholicism that prepared you uh, for for? stepping out standing out uh going against this new religion or yeah. is it deeper than that maybe just your attitudes or... yeah it's a couple things you know my there's definitely the the focus of the individual conscience and the really personal you know this i guess it's even more of a protestant thing the personal relationship with god but but the the conscience as the arbiter of truth like the fundamental like the deepest hmm. truth and it's not like my truth uh, but it kind of is, so it's yeah. it's a it's an interesting thing there. I don't I don't know how to sort it out, but but the idea is that it is a wrestling with the questions at the deepest level of self, and then the emergence of you know that authority. That's an authority. You don't need you know. Yeah, there there were the church hierarchy and stuff. I mean, yeah. so I don't think it's so much Catholicism as just God. I mean, Catholicism is kind of the antithesis of that with the Protestants, but I'm just talking about like the individual conscience and um, and also my dad being a, a lawyer and constantly grilling me on evidence. Like, what's your evidence for that? Like, what's the, you know, what's your substance? Like, what is your, and then, and then me like trying to take that out and, and, and teach that to the kids to, to, and challenge my colleagues that in that way too, like. Um, where, and, and the way that harm and trauma is ta- are talked about and the way things, and when there was an incident at the school, trying to follow up and be like, a, like research what's actually happened. Like what is the event that occurred and not getting, be able to get an answer and, and then realizing that, well, no, we're making decisions where the actual, like no one can face their accuser or if they, you know, the, the accuser himself is hiding behind a veil of, of, of harm or, or the, or the fear of harm oh, yeah, yeah. and all that stuff. And like, this is, this is going to collapse the, you know, the core institutions, the, the core moral, like 
priorities of culture like it's it's deep way deeper than any of the the individual little instances mm-hmm. um and now i'm just i'm just really focused on the k through 6 the way this collective moral framework is getting instantiated where the like the kids i taught in high school this those students had had they hadn't had that yet mm-hmm. the students coming up are going to be completely different they're going to be like the red guard Okay, they're they're not gonna, you know, they're not gonna have. Maybe many of them, some of them will, but many of them won't have the the other influences on their life. I mean, some of them will, and that's great, like parents and stuff. It's not just all school, but they're getting explicitly educated in a particular worldview um, that's way deeper than viewpoint diversity or any of the stuff that a lot of these organizations. They make it about viewpoint diversity and they make it about what well, we need to entertain both sides. Like, yeah, at high school, but you don't, you can't do that. You can't have competing moral frameworks in K through six. It doesn't work. You, you would have kids, one kid would be behaving by one moral framework and the other kid by another one. Like, and you wouldn't, they're, and they're not about the individual moral framework. They're about the collective. So, so when those kids reach, you know, 12, 13, 14, they start to have, their reason will be built on that platform. And that's not, good. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Anyway, the yeah, the the moral the moral framework kind of looping in what Paul was saying uh, and these competing moral frameworks. I think that the Catholic moral framework that that I grew up with and I think Paul hit on it, although he said it, his opinion was it didn't have so much to do with being Catholic as a belief in God is even though the Catholic Church is very authoritarian and has this very defined hierarchy, it constantly appeals to a higher authority than itself. And I specifically remember being a very rebellious eighth grader during confirmation and, and telling my Catholic mother, you know, what's your uh, uh, patron saint's name going to be who, you know, you choose uh, the name of a saint uh, during your confirmation process. I chose St. Damien because of the omen, <laughs> just to just to push back, just to upset her, just to rile people up. And she knew why I did that. And I said, well, I don't even believe in God. And so we met with the priest. It was this big crisis for my family. And the uh, the approach I got was, was completely different. I think my parents were a little shocked that I wasn't being kind of uh, thrown under the bus by the priest and told I'm going to go to, you know, it was, well, you know, what is your conscience? What does your heart tell you? And he starts talking about kind of the different uh, Canaan laws and the appeals to a uh, moral center, a calling from God. And I experienced this again uh, when I when I got married. Uh, it was, you know, if you do not believe in the certain kind of prescriptions of the Catholic Church, that makes you a Protestant, and you have an obligation to protest the Church um, according to— and, and so that, a lot of people don't realize that about Catholicism, is it does have this sort of uh, appeal outside itself— to uh, to an authority it, it views itself as very vulnerable and uh, fallible 
even though people, the, the perception you get is that, well, I thought they were infallible. No, that there's, if you look at kind of Canaan law, um, there's a lot of kind of prescriptions on how to deal with this. So I think that that shaped me uh, growing up and, and kind of becoming an adult into this idea that you, the moral authority to act does not come from a job or from a relationship. It comes from somewhere higher. And you have to, that is where you need to be drawn to. And that's something that that's, I think still guides me and probably will always guide me. Um, appeal. And I don't, you know, again, I, my kind of beliefs, I'm kind of in this agnostic state, but I still feel this call and this pulling to uh, something outside of myself that I believe is bigger and, and better than me and uh, more objective. And, and I can't ground um, what I do in my own self-interest because that's, that's misguided. That's, problematic for a lot of reasons um and so that is my my kind of experience with catholicism mm -hmm. i know everyone has a very different experience but it sounds like you know based on what paul was saying that he i i noticed you know i said hey that's that's what he's talking about yeah and, i had the uh, same thing confirmation like they were i was doubting and i was like well i don't do this and they were you know they would throw it back on me and be like well what do you if you have doubts you know you should maybe think about it but then but then I really, it, it forced me to actually say, well, do I really want to step outside of this entire community and not do what everyone is else is doing? And I didn't really engage with the question, but just putting it on me and saying like, well, what do you really have the guts to do? Like, we're going to challenge you to actually ask yourself what you're ready for. I was like, yeah, you know, I guess like I kind of ready. Like, I mean, it was a, it was a interesting. It, is that... It doesn't. It seems like it is lacking. Is that process lacking within this woke movement within schools, where if a student resists, the priest or the teacher or the DI consultant will say, "Well, here are your options. Why do you think that way?" Is there that process that uh, you know? I remember there's this uh, Devil's Playground. It's a really fascinating a documentary about the Amish uh, youth, and they're oh, given. Yeah. They're given a year outside, and most oh, of them yeah. snap back. And some, but the problem is, is that if you don't go back to the church, you are completely cut off from everything, from the entire community, from your parents, from your family. You never get to come back. So it's it's pretty manipulative, right? But they're, yeah. they're given that little freedom. I wonder if uh, if woke uh, this woke process or this religion will develop. Like, well, what do we do with the rebels from that, and how do we engage them in a way where they can have a choice to come back to really start to think through this stuff. doesn't seem like it's developed that far um, because it is so collective. It doesn't have a spot for the individual other than casting them out. But I want Yeah, you're right. Similar. I could, I could imagine some, you know, if it persists of God forbid for 50, 60 years, it would probably evolve some kind of relief valve mechanism where you could just go and be white for a while, no matter what race you are. Like you could, you know, wander among the skinheads, you know, in their mental framework and do whatever you want. And then you come back and, I mean, they, there is some of that and that some of the more subtle and then like nuanced practitioners will say, well, everyone's at a different stage and, you know, you're, you have to confront your fragility at your own, you know, at your own pace. We need to meet you where you are. You hear that phrase a lot, but then you also hear pushback against that phrase. Like that's too passive. Like we can't meet you where you are. You're never going to progress. 
So we need to push you. You need to push white supremacy. Uh, there's there's definitely that tension there. But yeah, that's an interesting hmm. thought. It seems like there's just too many radicals, and the the thought is too radical to actually have a conservative principle yet. But that it seems like what you guys were describing with the reaction from your priests or from your church to your even just your questioning or your rebellion comes from a, a assuredness and uh latching onto a tradition that's a little bit more stable than what we're seeing with you know uh, pedagogy of the oppressed and critical theory all the stuff that this stuff is based on all the stuff that wokeness is based on is very radical very changey very in your face and it doesn't have any way to to calm down the super radicals. It seems like the radicals always get their way by, by problematizing everything else. So we'll see how that develops. If it, if it, uh, I think if you persist. get the, if you get the dictatorship of the intersectariat and these people are running things, then it'll be like, you know, style Khrushchev after Stalin or something down the road where they'll create these sort of this rum springer for, for, for people that can't be, you know, massaged by the what's Rome Spring is that the, that's that's the uh, I think that's the Amish year yep, that they the, get the devils yeah. the devil yeah the devils yeah the playground the yeah I think that's what it means I here's here's where I, I may differ in in whether we'll get to this point of having this period where you can go outside their faith I don't think they don't seek a religious spiritual community just for themselves they seek a theocracy. It's not just for them. It's for you as well. We have to live under it. It's, it's inherently connected to political systems. So I think that's what scares me. That's why they can't tolerate dissent. That's why they have to act so swiftly and they have to crush it is because they're also dealing with controlling half of the population. You don't have a choice. You don't. If I, I used to ask uh, some of my colleagues, this. I said, well, why can't you kind of do your own thing? You know, if, what if we have a state-based, you know, or communitarian system, you form your own kind of progressive woke community and we, we form our kind of community. No, we, we can't allow that because you will be inflicting harm. You will be, your very presence is problematic. It, it wants you to bend to it, its will. It's, it, that's what frightens me. Now I'm also cynical and <laughs> have a dismal view, I think of kind of, um, these things but uh yeah i think it's it's theocratic in that nature so we may be a long way off i mean i i, I foresee a dark the dark that would ages, be cold so. comfort i agree yeah um but yeah no you're right like like you you're a fly in the ointment the purity test the uh, you know those moral foundations about purity is like your presence is traumatic the uh... The recent example of, and it's really difficult not to be very, very cynical about this, but there's mm -hmm. this trucker protest in uh, Canada. The prime minister fled uh, or disappeared or didn't show up, wouldn't confront them, and then started releasing statements about these very curiously placed uh, bad pictures, Confederate flags in Canada, but whatever, Confederate flags with a photographer like taking pictures of this one Confederate flag, or, you know, somebody drew a Nazi on one of these things, or like there's these symbols. And Trudeau 
insofar as he is, he is anything other than a mouthpiece for something else, I don't even think he's real. I think he's just this, this shopping bag for something else. Um, Trudeau's only talking about all the bad. You, you deface the statue. I'm disgusted by this. I'm just totally ignoring everything. But using that one little instance and, and the, the Canadian press is eating it up. That is what the story is all about. That's the only thing we're going to really report on because these people are all white supremacists, obviously, even though the footage is that people are shooing away the Confederate flag guy, like the actual protests are shooing away this little plant. Um, so on, on, a, on a political level, on that level of controlling the population, of stopping dissent, um, and then that and taking, taking that and transposing it or juxtaposing it with the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, where Trudeau was bending down and kissing the ground. And it was all about this an intersectionally approved disrupting of society. It doesn't matter how many shops are burned because this is for justice. All of this stuff is happening for justice. The, the political level is a little bit different than, than what we're talking about with the, uh, with the true believers down below. But again, it goes back to how well these people will be controlled by the correct narrative coming down from the top. So, you know, there's this globalist elite or whatever it is up here, which is a different conversation or it's operating a little bit differently than what we're describing in schools and with the population and, and the moral frameworks down here and how they interact with population control or whatever it is. Uh, if we do get to a dicta uh, dictatorship of the intersectariat, it will only be, I think, uh, the face of a of a globalist cabal because it's really easy to control a population that's caught up in this very subjective mentality it's really hard to control individuals with a individual moral access it's really difficult to control people unless they voluntarily you know not yeah. submit but put in their hats i think i think that's why the focus on education is has to be the issue um until we can solve it because they're playing the long game. We, we sometimes win these, these short-term battles. And meanwhile, in our schools, what, what, our, what our children are learning, what they're being subjected to, how they're being shaped and molded, doesn't play out badly for us until maybe, I don't know. I mean, if it's anyone's guess, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, but they're playing the long game in the schools. And um, Paul and I spoke about this. We spoke to a group about, and these were mostly conservative men, and we kind of called them out on it. We said, you've been focused on, uh, you've left cultural issues, you've left education to the left, you've been concerned about tax policy and X, Y, and Z, and, and you're going to pay for it now. Hmm. And hmm. some of them didn't know what to yeah, I was thinking I was thinking about the the other day where we at least my generation Gen X we kind of let civic engagement. I I personally and I think it might have been a theme among my cohort um kind of let left civic engagement to itself and now the activists are claiming it. And there's a difference between being an activist and being civically engaged. Being a citizen, a responsible citizen, is not an activist. And all this radical activist stuff has now supplanted just basic rudimentary, humdrum, boring, exhausting, freaking Zoom meetings going on, civic engaged, uh, for hours, civic engagement. And you know, like you're saying, with cultural 
matters, but also school boards and and uh, all these other different little nexuses of government. Yeah, the yeah, the Gen X thing is interesting. I mean, if you if if you want to look at it, a case study of a of a community that was where the activists went into civic engagement and just destroyed it, is Berkeley. You know, like Berkeley, there's a tremendous the book the about town, the, the whole town, the whole thing. Um, you know, the radicals kind of hijacked the levers of power there after they didn't get their transformative revolution, and um, and you know this place kind of fell apart and and became you know the schools went to shit and uh there's a great book about it destructive generation where they write a chapter about berkeley and um getting back i think part of it is that this, this for me like civic engagement was the province of the of the idealist boomers right like that was their thing and i was yeah like i felt like nah it's a, it's really like a visceral, but then you pay for it, right? Like the, the feelings you've, your reactions as a adolescent wind up screwing over the world. Yeah. I, I <laughs> didn't understand. I didn't understand it or, or, you know, the idea of the, the, the kind of civic national religion that, you mm-hmm. know, I did used to kind of, that's a boomer thing, go in education. So that's silly pledge of elite who needs these things. And, you know, the school I'm in, very diverse, uh, black, Hispanic, uh, Asian, white, very diverse, uh, all, all different types of groups in, in each population, uh, these kind of racial groups. And I started to, to think about, you know, us as a nation and what unifies us. And I noticed that, you know, no, no one in the nowhere in any classroom, Pledge of Allegiance, no one stands for it. And I said... What, what unifies us? What brings us together in this country? That is the one commonality. And that's when I started to change and, and encourage my students to stand up. I said, guys, the one thing we have in common, the one thing that doesn't divide us, that doesn't cause us to fight is we're all Americans. And they'd kind of, you know, okay. And I would kind of try and encourage that as, as a positive thing. I said, think about what brings us together. I said, we all live in the, the same country. We want kind of similar things. We want to live this kind of life. And I said, I start to think, I said, maybe, you know, if, if the Pledge of Allegiance is a kind of national morning prayer, maybe that is what some people need to bring. It's the only thing out of the whole school day that all my students would be able to do together and say together. Yeah. I, and again, it's not, this isn't a position on like the, ple- you know, it's not my big hill to die yeah. on, but it was yeah. just an observation that it, it, it could be a unifier and um, yeah. something higher, like you were saying higher. about the church that right. the church pointed to. Something higher, and and the uh, higherness that is uh, invoked by the radical progressive woke is this utopia, like this liberatory theology. It is there is a higher purpose, but if you look at it, it's it's not it's imminent. It's not transcendent. There's no transcendence to it, but it's very imminent. It's going to happen. It's going to happen now. It's going to happen everywhere. It's very earthly it's very satanic in a way <laughs> yeah but it's like a birth right so like if you look at, if you think of the dialectic as like a, as like the parted thighs of the present right and so mm-hmm. what is being born what is the beast that is to be born it's this constant like like uh, rosemary's baby you know the the they're all huddled around the pregnant like 
we must create the safe space for the for the the voices of that yeah. will deliver us from our corrupt world right so it's so it's so constantly obsessed with the the future perfect tense right they're they're all sort of imaginary historians from a future that are you know huddled around the the delivery room of of the beautiful and they and everything they do is to sort of like like um midwives like to you know handmaidens like trying to prepare the space for and did you know did did someone did the marginalized speak we must we must privilege that, right? Because everything else is corrupt. And so but only the whale. So it's kind of like they want the crying baby. They can only recognize the trauma of this event, right. the, the contractions yeah. and the pain and, and the, the wailing and the, and the severing mm. and the afterbirth and stuff, the grotesque stuff, not really the transcendent part. I don't know. I, it doesn't seem like there is a transcendence other than those, uh, that, that euphoria of the, of the theatrical the, the theatrical moment, I'm thinking a lot about the evergreen uh, footage where th there was kind of a transcendent thing there, but it was very like it was very contained, constrained. It wasn't unifying. It was divisive. There was. Yeah, but that's the dialect. Like, I think they're thinking of things. I think there is a spirituality there. There is a transcendence. It's just projected into this imaginary immaterial future zone where it will be known and that yeah. all of the chaos and rupture of our of our theatrics is is just the rending of garments around the you know sort of like the beautiful future that's coming hmm. um and uh it's always a nightmare i mean it's always like they're making the nightmare so like you know what if you were to actually you know, uh, the the body count is long. So um, I have not seen a counterfactual. I'm waiting for a counterfactual and all these mini evergreens popping up. I'm waiting for the counterfactual. I don't even know if I'm using that word right. I'm, I'm waiting for the example of true restorative justice where this campus is finally purged and it starts to create the new man or whatever, the new them, Chaz whatever Chop. this thing is. Chaz Chop. You know, yeah. the autonomous that, zone. The, that ended with yeah. a young black boy being killed by the security, right? Right. The gang, you know, <laughs> the gangs took over. It was anarchy. Yeah. And, but, you know, this is, we've been playing this. This is not new. I mean, it seems like Evergreen is new, but it was People's Park in Berkeley. It was, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, 1969, Willis Strait takeover at Cornell. It's, all of these di things have, have been going on um, in in different uh Academic ways. settings specifically, or I think academic settings a lot, and also you know co cosmopolitan urban settings. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I've been it, looking it, to it. It has to be circumscribed. It can't happen in nature. This cannot happen in. It's like gender. It it has to happen within a cosmopolitan society or some sort of very. It has to happen in a bubble. It can't happen in a farming community where everybody is, you know, laboring under the sun and and constrained to the seasons and you know has yeah. any sense of callous on their hands this right, is not right. this is not a hard-handed event or religion it's a fever dream you know the this is the febrile longings of a disconnected hmm. atomized people they they need it to be an eternal crusade i think this idea that it will ever end um by their own hand um maybe wishful thinking. I mean, you look at the, um, you know, thinking back as a historian, the communist revolutions, um, even when they achieved complete and absolute power and control, there was this idea that the revolution must continue. The revolution continued for 
till the, the Soviet Union collapsed um, because the revolution's never finished. There's always the specter of uh, capitalism or uh, capitalist values, Westernism. And in the same case, there's always going to be the specter of white supremacy or toxic masculinity. It will always be there. And they'll, mm -hmm. they'll find it, too. And they'll highlight it as their example of one case of it, and that uh, reinforces their whole kind of regime. Yeah, the other day, Nick, Hannah Nicole Jones was celebrating the fact that white supremacy is such an elastic term. She was very proud, like this. Yeah. This can this can just move and envelop anything that it needs to. It's a very I had, I, useful, I read that. very useful tool for what? <laughs> it is. It is the way. I mean, in race Marxism, it's capitalism. Like that's. It yeah. just translates so well because there's almost an admiration in Marxism for capitalism because it's, it it can morph into all these different forms, and you know, just when you think the revolution is about to happen, well, then capitalism finds a way to shape shift and. And that's what whiteness does. And I was thinking, I read that and I was like, has anyone, like they talk about late capitalism. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot of Marxism. And I was like, someone's had to have said late whiteness. Yeah. And sure enough, mm. like it's late in the stage. literature. Late, <laughs> late stage, stage whiteness. There... <laughs> yeah, there is. There's like a, Late actually stage was, caucasity. <laughs> yeah, late stage caucasity. This is a thing. You can, yeah, I tweeted about it. Late whiteness. And it reminded me there was a, the DEI person at, at, at my school, you know, I was having conversation with her and she was saying, like, a lot of people in the movement really believe that whiteness is about to break and that we're going to be free soon. And that, you know, when whiteness, whiteness is becoming more fragile and then it's all going to break. And I was like, really, do you think that's going to happen? And she was like, no, you know, it's important not to, like, count on that happening we need to really think long term and this may happen like at the end of our lifetimes or maybe and then I'm, I'm thinking like this is exactly how the marxist you know activists talk about the promised land you know we, we we can't immunitize the eschaton you know some people are immunitizing the eschaton some people are saying it's a long-term game but that that orientation towards whiteness is so similar it just it's just so funny to me <laughs> was no. my uh was my flinching at twerking like late stage whiteness? Is that? Kind I think of it end? was. I think your whiteness is about to break. It's going to break. It's going to break. <laughs> I'm going to get up. I'm going to get up and start twerking, and uh, you're, that's you're, it. That's the end. It's a free your ass process, and your mind yeah. will follow, or free your mind and your ass <laughs> will follow. I said. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, oh, gosh, what a what a time to be alive. So. But you guys, um, despite our imminent cynicism, uh, you guys are still uh, working on projects. You guys are still being constructive in the midst of this, uh, in the shadow of the great deconstructive revolution. Tyranny. Yeah, what are you guys making? When will wokeness break? It's like both sides are waiting for the other to break or like, I don't know. Will wokeness break? Will there be a breaking? Will there be a breaking through? Well, I mean, I, I you know, I'm thinking about cultural products and uh, playing toward the uh, virility of art. Uh, I mean, getting. I'm just thinking of one example: getting young men to just channel their energy into something cool and good 
And whether that's art or mechanics or crafts or craft, um, that capitalizing on cre the creative impulse um, and showing ways of concentrating that, whereas I think these woke rights always dilute. It's always about like this orgiastic, uh, you know, movement and then there's nothing left it's all gone after the end and there's ways of of channeling that chaotic creative energy into something where you have you don't you fail a lot pursuing that and you're going to build a lot of crap but you're going to have something over time that's going to sustain you and 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 be much more invigorating and and again it goes back to that moral center and that creative center i think that that is one way to just persuade the hell out uh these kids uh, in in another direction but yeah i agree them, yeah the apollonian you know like the form and like structure and and making and those are so rewarding yeah i think people i think what people need right now is to to see examples of some defiance and some resistance and some endurance to know that y you can do it and, um, and, and still remain standing at the end of the day. They're not going to, well, hope not, <laughs> not going to kill you. Um, and, and I think people need to form communities that will um, support and enable them to speak a little bit more freely, a little bit more openly. I mean, realistically, you know, I don't expect anyone to ever be crazy enough to, you know, torch things to the ground like I didn't just say, hey, what what the hell? Let's let's go for this. But I, I hope that people can maybe push back a little bit in their own way and not feel they need to reflexively apologize or fear for their job. I think that usually makes things worse. Um, sometimes when you resist, it's almost like they only understand and respect a little bit of power back. Hmm. They don't know what to do with it. Hmm. And, and I hope to, I hope to figure out the rest as I go along. I mean, in some ways I, speaking to Paul about this, we took a drive down to Tennessee from Chicago and I didn't know what I was doing when I started. And I, in some ways I still don't know. I, I felt this kind of calling and, um, I said, I got to do something. I got to start writing. I just got to get this out of my system. And it kind of was like, you know, the, the current kind of took me where it took me. And I, I still feel that same way. Uh, and I think other people may find that they reach that point in their own time. You know, I don't know, after 12 years of teaching in a public, bad public school, maybe that's what it takes. Maybe for other people, it'll be 20 years. But I, I don't want people to reach that point, but I think people will start to increasingly uh, reach that point where they can't take it anymore, where they can't be, especially as you see this kind of movement become more repressive. I think it, mm -hmm. many people have the opposite. It's like pushing, you know, a, a springs down. Eventually they're going to pop back in a way you don't expect and not everyone, but if enough people do that, it, it may give other people hope to do it in their own way. We just need to, we need to kind of assert ourselves and, and put our foot, feet down a little. And I have, you know, sometimes I've had friends tell me, they said, I got a job. I can't do this. I said, look, I said, what point does it become any easier to stand up? I said, you think it's difficult now. It's going to be a hell of a lot more difficult when these people get a little bit more power and it'll be, and when they have a lot of power, 
it's going to become near impossible. So make your make your make your call. You're going to be quiet forever. You're you're discontented now. You're going to live like that your whole life. Are you going to stand up now while you while you can't? Yeah, I mean, to Frank's point, I think uh, standing up can take many different forms. But I think ultimately, what we need is I've been working on exposing stuff, so teacher training and conferences and getting those videos out there. Um, but I think we need to we need to get into this kind of nose to nose, real bare knuckle tactics about how to actually how do you actually stand up? There have been good work so far on it. Like there's counter Warcraft. There's Carlin's book, you know, actively on woke is coming out. There's good stuff in both of those books, but I think it's really about framing. Like I see too often people are trying to, they are, they have people on such a back foot rhetorically that you have to be able to sort of have a, an actual authentic moral frame that you can speak from, which is iron. I mean, we need to syncretize and rebuild an inner moral frame and structure and set of hierarchical principles around all the things, right? Liberty, equality, freedom. There needs to be something like a base of ideas and morality that you can talk with, with confidence from where you can put them on the back foot and say, no, not like I'm, I'm not racist, but you know, you, and not that your anti-racism is racism, but actually, you know, no, you're anti-liberty, you're anti-equality, you're anti-justice, and we're going to ignore you now. Like it, it needs to be that firm. Like where there, and then and then when you you have to not you can't just say that in the void. You have to say those things at the places where the decisions are made and be able to back it up with an authentic morality, which is a which is as strong and as confident and sure as and more so than their morality. This is really a war about competing moral frameworks and so like that's where i think the energy it, really we need sort of like street epistemology remember the thing that uh was it bogosian did with he had someone that he was connected with doing that yeah they would go on the street and argue with athe argue with religious people or or jehovah's witnesses and have a set of tactical responses and framing things and like we need that's that's what i think we need a kind of a field manual for it i don't know what yeah. do you think well, the, the problem is, is that the, uh, the radical activists shut down anything that even approaches that. So the, they're already lost. What needs to happen is the conversations around building community that um, builds community outside, rebuilds the network of the, the corrective liberal framework that can expel the intolerant fundamentalism of the woke and that has to be based in community so it's not just uh apologetics but it's actually relationship building and then whenever it, it it occurs that somebody who's woke is able to be open to that but it has a mm -hmm. lot of different tricks in it to shut off open inquiry curiosity inventiveness and mm -hmm. uh, disobedience um, or rebelliousness. I mean, other than pitting all those things against a certain uh, boogeyman that it's created, um, giving examples outside of that. I don't know if you can actually talk somebody out of wokeness. Like you can talk to a Catholic. Um, no, no, no. I I'm not. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I guess I'm. I'm thinking more like step, like put them on the back foot in a power in a power mm -hmm. grab situation, 
because these things are always playing in a power grab situation. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's not about convincing anybody. I mean, I love to convince people, but they're, this is not about convincing. This is about taking back institutions. This is about, you know, the real politique of, you know, what happens in a school, what happens in a, in a school board or a town meeting or whatever, um, company, corporation. So like being able to say, because so often they sort of exploit the moral loop, the moral frailty of like, oh, well, we want to be inclusive, want to be this and that. And they frame those words so that they set them up to put you on a back foot. Mm-hmm. But to, you have to, I'm just thinking like, you just got to like, you know, jujitsu and like have, and it's not a branding exercise. Like that's the problem I think FAIR makes is it's not a brand. They do great work in other areas, but like it's not a branding exercise. It is a challenge to the moral, like, constitutive moral stuff that you have to have inside you and like know how to defend it and fight for it. I don't know. Yeah. This, this idea we've discussed this, that they're going to sit down at the table and kind of have this rational discussion with you. If you just ask nicely enough, we're not at that point yet. The, they don't respect the kind of outside movement because they throw an accusation out. They say you're a white supremacist. People cower in fear. People apologize. People go into hiding. Why would you have a conversation? Why would you listen to what someone has to say until you respect their standing and position a little bit? And I think the only way we get to that point is, is standing up to them. It's like a like a child. You know, I mean, I have a, a five-year-old and they can be little tyrants. Stand up to them and then he'll talk to you. If I ran away from a man, I mean, that would be, oh, no, no, no. He'd never talk to me, never have that conversation. And so in some ways, you know, when they act, I mean, their behavior sometimes mirrors that of a child. They scream and they throw a fit and cry and make all these accusations. And and we just kind of fold. I say we, I say kind of, you know, society outside of that. If you don't fold, if you stand up and assert yourself a little bit, they, they may come to you. And, and I've had people come to me from that, that have, um, you know, people I never would have expected. I want to listen to, you know, a little bit more about what you have to say. I'm willing to talk with you. And I don't think they would have before. Yeah, I gave, I gave a speech at a board meeting and I went up there and I just kind of laid it out against the superintendent and the, and the whole school district. And um, a gentleman there is a, a black gentleman who's kind of, I would describe him as a, a very, um, I, I don't want to say a black nationalist, but kind of of that uh, kind of strain of ideological thought, black power movement, kind of old school. And he afterwards said, uh, he said, I, I respect what Mr. McCormick was able to do. He said that takes courage and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and we formed a, I reached out to him after I saw that. And I was like, God, this guy, I mean, everyone knows him in the community as kind of this, you know, powerful figure for kind of the, I, I guess you'd say woke kind of left um, black causes. And I reached out to him and said, Hey, I said, I appreciate what you said. And he, we met for lunch. We formed a friendship. I mean, we, I met with him yesterday. We sat down. We had lunch together. We, we like each other. But, but I don't think we would have gotten to that point if he didn't have some respect for me. Mm. And, and likewise, it's just interesting um, how, how that works. And so um, maybe that's my help. Maybe if people stand up a little bit, they'll get more of the conversations they want. You know, 
this uh, this conversation is an excellent, uh, not sequel, but pairing with my conversation with James Lindsay and King Crocodile, which was very about the science, naturalism, uh, social constructivism is very high-minded stuff. And I made a point in that uh, after we were talking about different arguments to do to prove reality is reality and not this other subjective thing that we also need moral frameworks. We need moral arguments. We need to show people, you know, ask questions. Does this make you feel good or is this making you feel bad? And um, are people respecting you? Are you, are you respecting yourself? Like there's the whole slew of moral arguments or presuppositions or frameworks that we need to investigate along with the intellectual disciplines, uh, which which are very specialized. The intellectual side of this stuff is very specialized. It is very academic. It is very narrow. Moving that into the how they how critical theory translated into woke preschools was through a process of, of simplification and kind of humanization of it, uh, de-abstraction of it. And they did that by way of allegory and rhetoric and and um, pictures gender unicorns stuff like that the same thing needs to happen with um, this renewed liberalism or whatever this is that we're talking about we need to take the principles that are very high-minded and then translate them into embodied realities it has to really hit the lived experience and i think good old-fashioned american gumption and standing up for yourself being respect uh, respected and respectful um also being creative like there's all these different vectors of of actualizing this of embodying this of of making it human making it dramatic making it counter theatrical in a way that it's like i'm performing this values in the world but my my performance is a phenotype of something that i've thought through and and my my coding, I've checked it. I've I've wrestled with God, you know. I was yeah, cast yeah. out into the desert, and now I'm going to rebuild that into something that you know I I am in society and going through that process. And there's a lot of good s- stories out there of people going through that, being uh, disillusioned with the with the group and having to really get their face pounded in the wall before a lot of people really wake up and start to you know they need their nose broken before they can start to own their own face. You know, um, and no, that doesn't happen to happen for everybody. But um, if you don't go through that process on some level, then I don't think you're fully developed as a human being. I think you have to die a few times. But that's my own Christianity talking in a way. No, yeah, you said it. You, I think every everything you said, and then you said whatever this is. Remember, like liberalism, whatever this is, whatever this is has to turn into this is like no bones about like this is. Hmm. We hold these truths to be self-evident, fine, and and that you got to speak, you got to whatever. If it if if it is still whatever this is, fine, like it is what it is, and it is what it isn't. But you have to, we're gonna have to hash that out to where, and each person has to do that for themselves. Obviously, this isn't a we, but like that has to, that core has to be distilled, where you can go into a fight and you can get your nose broken, and you but you can like that's what's gonna bring you back into the fight. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just, I don't. Know. Yeah, um, yeah. You have to break. It's okay to break and then rebuild yourself yeah. into something better and, and stronger. And sometimes it's like, you know, Benjamin was saying, you break multiple times and um, you have to die a few times. I I, I like that because um, that's something I've kind of spoken about is how I 
felt broken just by the system. I think 2020, the pandemic being out of school, it's just this wake up call uh, to to have to find and, and rebuild myself. And so, yeah, so it's it's very personal for me. I mean, this kind of there's the, the obviously deals with the politics and the public sphere. And then there's this personal element, too. Uh, the, and it's very intimately connected in a, in a strange way that I never uh, thought would be. I always kind of had separated those two. But, um, hmm. yeah, it's, I like that. If to die a little. Well, gentlemen, plug your products now <laughs> chalkboard heresy we, chalkboard yeah, what heresy is what do you, keep what your is keep your eyes out all right we're gonna yeah we're gonna have, we're gonna have some information rolling out soon um okay. if people go to uh chalkboardheresy.com we're gonna have uh some more information so um just look forward to having some fun getting some conversations going. So what, what yeah. is this? Is, is this kind of like a men's group? Uh, you guys going to have sauna days where you mm. go and you talk about uh, the woke burns that you had and there's some solving of, of one another? <laughs> or uh, is, there, is this a podcast? Is this, uh, are you guys going to do writing? It's like an Iron essays? John thing. This is like a... We're gonna try, yeah, we're going to try and do some, um, <laughs> do some like YouTube shows centered around education to keep this conversation okay. going. Because one thing Paul and I discussed is that, you know, the public may lose interest after a while. You know, we mm -hmm. recognize now what an important issue it is. And we may find a year from now it's gone out of the news cycle. The school board activity, it's all died down. And if, if people really believe what they believe now, that mm -hmm. this is vital to win the schools, then we can't forget about this. Mm -hmm. So we're hoping in some small way to keep the conversation going and keep things focused on education just to where... It's, it's part of the common discourse, which I think mm -hmm. is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, for educators, it's sometimes a surprise. We're so used to it being relegated to, you know, kind of outside the public interest, let the teachers and the schools do what they need to do. And recently this phenomenon has been like, oh, okay, so people are paying attention. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. yeah. And we're going to have, we'd love to give advice to teachers. We'd love to have, uh, we're going to have ways where teachers can send in stories anonymously, or they can ask questions, we can give advice to them, or how to, how to, in a small way, maybe slightly restore some sanity to a curriculum, or work with a student, or work with a parent. Um, the show will be for parents and students as well. Um, we know a lot of people in the education space that have a vast troves of knowledge we can share, you know, by having them on, so we're really excited about it. Yeah. We'd love to have you on, Benjamin. You want oh, to be yeah. talking? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, <clears throat> hear your thoughts on... Uh, You're an edu you educated man. Every, everyone's in in intimately related to education in some way. They're either paying taxes or they, yeah, they have true. children in it or they have family. I'm a bus driver, so I, I, I deal with it every day. So, oh, yeah. there you go. I don't know. I, I, I like our, our notes. Like This is some of the most... Uh, Tweety material. There's so many oh. good little word plays. I love riffing with you guys. So it's really fun. So oh wow, great. Nothing That's else. great. I didn't even see you taking notes there. You really, you really oh, slide. Good. People think I'm I'm looking at my phone. Actually, I haven't got the phone comment in a long time, but I do take notes on these shows. There's a lot of, a lot oh, that's of good great. flattering and stuff. And also, um, audacity of caucasity. That was what I was looking for. I'm I'm stuck on an evergreen uh, song. <laughs> 
and that's the perfect kind of thing to work work toward. So <laughs> yeah, it's a so good you one. Got me at a jam there. Yeah, there's the cool. there's this whole doo-wop song about uh, Chet Einstein's privilege because he he had the audacity to stand up to the equity canoe meeting. Um, so uh, right, oh, I good, to, good. I yeah, figure out how that how that happens. So now not I'm all skin folk are kin folk is another. <laughs> you know that one. I love how the conversation, we began with twerking, just kind of like, okay, well, this is where we're starting. Somehow, it's, it's, rewind, I mean, it just elevated. This has been it's going to be a dance twerk. number. This whole conversation has been an intellectual Whoa. circle twerk, you could say. How, how did they go? It, there you go. Yeah. It was just, yeah. You, the way in you your face about race. If Chalkboard Heresy has a men's club, I'll tell you what, Benjamin, we'll have twerking back there. Uh, you're yeah. invited. It's going to be great. Posters on the wall will not yeah. be released to the public. No. All right, guys, say, say goodbye to the folks at home, and we can have a chat after. All right. Bye, guys, everyone. Thank you for, for watching. Appreciate you made it. it this far. Well, they, of course they did.